I only do odd numbered episodes, apparently. Well, this is 10. Fuck. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> All right, well, fuck it. That, After that, I finish this, I'm going to drink a beer and then we'll see what happens. I think that'll be our cold open. <laughs> <laughs> cool. <laughs> All right, Joe, do you want to begin? Yes, yes. I'm an old man now, 24. Very old. Oh, yeah, it's Joe's birthday, everyone. It's Joe's birthday. Yeah. Happy Fuck birthday, comrade. Happy birthday. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Uh, yeah, so He's yesterday. 16 was... today, huh? <laughs> Sorry. Nope. For, for the record, I turned He's 24. 18. Listeners. You know, it's funny. Actually, the, on my 21st birthday, I went to a Yankees game at family with a friend. And I was going up to the uh, concession for like where the beer is. And for some reason, when I went to go give my ID to order the beer, I bloated up for some reason. I, oh, I just turned 18 over the weekend. I'm like, wait. No, I, actually. No, sorry. Actually, I was thinking about something else, actually. And they were Don't like, worry about it. this is clearly a fake ID. The guy was like, well, that's perfect because this is a porn stand. So you're in luck. I, they have, the, they have those at Fenway now. <laughs> but uh, yesterday was uh, the beginning of what I, I like to think of as basically an orgy of oligarchy that, you know, is called the Democratic National Convention. And it really was an, an orgy of oligarchy because it was mostly Republicans speaking. Like you had really shitty, like generic dad looking guy, uh, former governor of Ohio, John Kasich. You had the former CEO of HP, Hewlett Packard. Uh, Meg Whitman, you had... Who is a Republican, by the way. I was just looking into her. So. Actually, Meg Whitman is, she's the former HP CEO, and she was also Google's top lobbyist in Washington, D.C. for 10 years. Our favorite, like, shitty boss, like, sociopath, Amy Klobuchar spoke last night. Andrew Cuomo, America's, like, favorite authoritarian, was speaking last night. Jim Clyburn, who is, like, arguably partially responsible for the situation we're currently in, spoke yesterday. The Democrat Senator from Alabama, Doug Jones, spoke last night. Michelle Obama spoke, and I'll get to that in a second. But Bernie spoke last night. It crammed into all of this. Bernie got like a couple minutes at about 10.30. And it was just so depressing and like at some point so crushing to like listen to Bernie talk about like how great Joe is on health care. Or having to listen to him talk about the environment despite the fact the Sunrise Movement gave Biden's plan an F rating. And he's like, oh, well, Joe will get to 15 bucks an hour. He's going to make unions easier to join. He's going to get us to carbon neutral in 15 years, despite the fact that's five years too late to be useful. And then he goes, well, Joe and I may not agree on how to do it. Joe is supportive of improving healthcare and making costs lower. And I'm like, oh my God, like I think a part of my soul just kind of died having to watch this. Like the ultimate like visceral culmination of like Bernie having to suck it up. The neoliberal order has decided that like, God forbid we have a like a managed decline in the American empire. Realistically, that's what's Sanders represented. Uh, Michelle Obama had a couple of unintentionally hilarious moments. Hilarious from a left-wing perspective. She said at one point uh, of Joe Biden, quote, he knows what it takes to rescue an economy, beat back a pandemic, and lead our country, end quote. Lead our country. Lead our country. His entire campaign has been predicated on people forgetting that he exists. Can't even remember what news pundit he's talking to. Gets their names wrong constantly lately. Jack, he's gonna, he's gonna, they're gonna weekend in Barney's him, Jack, you know. <laughs> My favorite was when he got Chris Wallace's name wrong, and he's like, "No, I, I'm Chris." He's like, "Oh, I, I, uh, I was talking to Ch- talking to Chuck Todd earlier." Oops. Okay, but Joe, didn't didn't you see that ad where he drove like a cool car and said the cool things? <laughs> Yeah, man, he had those glasses on. Yeah. But my, my favorite, like, Michelle moment that was, like, unintentionally hilarious was about young people are, like, desperately fighting for their futures. And all, on police brutality, all of these uh, people are crying out for justice and progress. And this is who we are. These are the values. We still believe in these values. We're these people. And it's like, she says, of the ticket, composed of the architect of mass incarceration, which is, like, directly responsible for what we're dealing with right now. He literally was the architect architect of like the, the legislation that led to the problems we have now with policing and a cop yeah i got who, a text i got a text from the move on campaign today and it was like joe biden's vice presidential pick kamala harris is a historic moment for our nation and i responded you first cop pick for vp you mean 
you should start like a, a blog where you put screenshots of your conversations with like bots from Mulan. I would actually yes. want to see that. Yeah. But like Kamala Harris was a tough on crime, like lock him up and throw away the key politician. Yeah. As recently as 2013, like quite a while after that had already become unpopular. Like this is who she is. She's not this restive person. Yeah. Was that Michael Brooks quote that it was like Joe or uh, yeah, Joe Biden wrote the bill on crime and then Kamala Harris like persecuted the hell out of it? Yeah, so, basically. Yeah. Like, Harris is, like, so, like, sociopathic that the Roberts Supreme Court deemed that she was violating the Eighth Amendment rights of the incarcerated population of California when she was the state attorney general there. This is the conservative Supreme Court headed up by John Roberts, Mm -hmm. who ruled in 2013 that the California Attorney General's office was violating the Eighth Amendment rights of uh, cruel and unusual punishment of the incarcerated population in California. Because under Harris's watch, the California Department of Corrections uh, had a serious overcrowding issue. Like the California state prisons were overcrowded at a rate of 200%. Think about that for a second. There are twice as many people as the prison in the prison as they were built to hold. And justice in America, the Supreme Court, John Roberts Court, ruled that overcrowding should be reduced from 200% to 137%. Very specific. But Joe, don't you remember during the primary debate when when Joe was like, we're just going to keep punching away at at domestic violence and we're just going to punch it. (laughs) We're going to beat it up. That's how to solve it. Actually, his his exact quote was, we're going to beat domestic (laughs) violence like a drum. That's his exact quote, I believe. Right. So don't you think he'll be able to hold it down? Like, that sounds... So I just I just find it very like annoying because obviously it's hypocritical because I've had this conversation only times in the past week at Libs that I know. Like, isn't she progressive? She ticks off all the boxes, like, no, she's like a bloodthirsty sociopath. Stop asking me if you think I like her. Like, it's getting annoying. Enough to the point where like I'd almost be on board with like sending every all the libs to like re-education camps to learn about what socialism is. Yeah, but she listened to Tupac before Tupac was born. Yeah. You know, there was this really uh, funny thing that Jamie Peck said of Kamala Harris like the day after the announcement was made. When it came to like her parents, like when it came to Kamala Harris, the apple fell off the cliff. You could say the same about Pete Buttigieg. Well, I have heard that, uh, what was his dad's name? Pete Yeah, Pete's name. Pete's yeah, Joseph Buttigieg. I've heard that Joseph Buttigieg wasn't a very, I've heard that he wasn't a very good ground scholar so he might have only been in it for like the you know for all the socialist proceeds the prestige of it (laughs) like the whole like wasn't really that serious about it but as i said uh the joe biden kamala harris ticket uh I think we can uh, safely recognize that, like, the material uh, conditions that will come out of that ticket are going to be no different than uh, what we are getting under Trump. And so the Democrats have set up the Weimar ticket because what's going to happen is if they win, well, the only real thing that will happen is a lot of the... uh, like far right groups and a lot of the fascist groups that we talked about a couple weeks ago are going to just go underground because liberals are not going to be paying attention anymore. And then the second that a, a Republican candidate gets like an opportunity, like they're going to fucking swell. So we're fucked. Like we're down the pipe now. So well, I mean, liberals are more comfortable with fascists because they're already kind of halfway in the door, anyways. Like liberals will always have and always have them more in common with fascists than they do with leftists. Because, like, at the end of the day, at their core, liberals believe in the sanctity of property rights. That's never going to change with them. Property rights are, they conflict with human rights. And- but under, under because we're so libertarian, we live in a society where, like, the governing doctrine is that, like, property rights are more important than humanity. Scott's right. We are literally, like, the, the Weimar ticket. Like, Joe Biden's, like, maybe 3 or 4% less bad. But it's more or less, like, the same deal. Like, it's Trump, but he's, like, less orange and slightly more cognitively confused as to what's going on. And uh, but it's more or less the same thing. Since they announced uh, Kamala as the VP pick, the campaign has lost 10 points. They're, they're, <laughs> they're trailing behind Trump now. Like, slightly. They have a very slight trail behind Trump now. So, uh, they might whiff it again. Actually, yeah, this, is what, this is what they did. This is what fear did. And you're I've right. I've been saying this for a year. This that, like, that he's going to lose. The fear of Trump and the supposed fear of, like, these outside influences of, like, Russia and some other fucking dumb bullshit, like, drove the Democrats to going with what they conceive to be, like, the safest option, which is just going to be, like, what Joe said. It's, like, it's a fucking, it's a fucking rampway to fascism. It's a rampway into 
we'll, we'll be talking about later, like accelerationism and stuff. It's just, it's not good. We did it. We did We're it. We're already on the on-ramp, dude. We're already on the on-ramp. It's just that half the country can't see it yet. I don't think they believe that this is the best ticket to get elected on. I think it's just the Actually, farthest I, they're I, willing I, to go. Is the one that I think they genuinely believe this because Biden is like the ultimate signifier candidate. Liberals can project onto him whatever they want, whatever their desires are, because Joe Biden doesn't really tangibly stand for any specific policy. He wasn't running on any specific thing. He was running on an idea. He was running on like a vibe, if you will. He was running on bringing us back to normalcy and honor or a time when America had honor. He wasn't actually running on a policy. Biden is an empty signifier of Obama. And Obama was an empty signifier of like the Clinton politics, like presidency. And Bill Clinton was essentially an empty signifier of like post-civil right era America. With the saxophone. With the saxophone. I guess this I, is like- I, sometimes I get into this yeah, like misfeasance versus malfeasance argument, but it doesn't matter at the end of the day. You know, like, no, it the doesn't. party sucks. No, does. like I honestly think they gen- Democrats <laughs> genuinely think they're going to win. <laughs> But they're going to lose because they assume that this is in the bag again. They're doing this exactly what they did last time. They assume they have this in the bag. So they're just going to kind of post on it on like, oh, Orange Man is too too stupid to win this. We're not going to do it. And you can see that there's, there's actually a like precedence. There's, there's a precedence for this at the Massachusetts level. <laughs> Like, Martha Coakley did this twice in the past decade. She, like, assumed that, like, she had it in the bag because she's a Democrat in Massachusetts didn't have to do anything. She lost to Scott Brown. She thought she had it in the bag against Baker four years later. Didn't do anything. Lost again. And then the Democrats did this at the national level two years later. And they're probably going to do it again. I've been saying this for, like, a year that I don't think that Biden can win the general election. Even with everything that's happened, somehow, some way, he will still find a way to fuck this up. Yes, he will. Joe. <laughs> Joe, can you do something for me? Yeah. Can you say there's a Cheeto in the White House. <laughs> hey, there's a dang Cheeto in the White House. Please. There is a Cheeto in the White House. This is accurate. That's fucking right. It's getting Cheeto dust everywhere. All right. <laughs> Speaking about uh, orange men, you want to talk about Joe Kennedy? Yes, I do. He actually just came off of a very poor uh, debate performance where he honestly looked, spent most of the debate looking like he, a deer in the headlights, like not being able to like give a specific answer to anything. They asked Marky about his record and what he's done for Massachusetts. He points to like 20 different things that he's done. He like pointed out so many things that they're like, okay, like that's enough. You've run out of time. And he's like, no, 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 I can keep going. I can keep going. Congressman Kennedy, what have you done? Um, uh, well... I want to keep the Obamacare around and we've got like a big problem and we got to come around and fix it. And he did like the Buttigieg thing where he like talks for two minutes without actually answering anything at all. Did he talk about the shape of our democracy at all? Because that's what the voters actually. are interested in. Oh my God, what was that quote again? The shape? The shape of our democracy is the- Our democracy is stacked, yo. <laughs> I think that was the whole quote. Anyways, uh, I, I did some digging in over the, into like who's been giving money to him in the last couple of days. And this is public record. Just in the last four days, six different entities have given him money that are worth note. Uh, first, there's the really stupidly named Pack to the Future, which is Nancy Pelosi's political action committee that she uses like give money to candidates and like basically exercise her like political will, her political power. Uh, it's a really stupidly named pack. They gave Kennedy's campaign like five grand on Friday. Also on Friday, uh, a max out donation was made by the billionaire CEO of Fidelity Investments, Abigail Johnson, who also happens to be quite literally the richest person in the entire state with an estimated net worth of over $15 billion. She's the CEO of Fidelity Investments. She's a pretty shitty person. On like her. August 15th, <laughs> uh, a $1,000 do- donation was made by Michael Riley, president of an entity called Catalyst Biologics. The thing that I found interesting about them is on the About Us page, they have a four-page long PDF called Modern Slavery Policy, which says, and I quote, the company has not identified any instances of modern slavery and human trafficking in the company last year. The document is dated April 29th of this year, which it's kind of interesting if you have to have a document on your About Us page stating that you have not been engaging in any human trafficking or modern slavery in the past 12 months. Makes you think. 
It's like the signs that are like, it's been zero days since any incidents of human trafficking and slavery. They have some kind of ties to a couple of the companies working on the COVID vaccine, apparently. The day after that... Sorry for all that accidental human trafficking. I didn't know what it was going to do. The day after that, Kennedy received a maxed out donation from Laura Trutella, Executive Vice President of Operations at Stewart Healthcare. Stewart Healthcare is the largest physician-owned private for-profit healthcare network in the United States, operating 35 hospitals across 10 states and the island of Malta. Totally doesn't seem shady at all. And then on August 17th yesterday, Kennedy received a $1,000 donation from Lisa Shields, Vice President of Global Communications at the Council on Foreign Relations. Anybody who does a lot of reading on foreign policy, should that should be a red flag right there. Not the good kind of red flag either. The bad yeah. kind of red flags. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like the Henry Kissinger kind of red flags. And, oh, fun fact about the Council on Foreign Relations. Uh, current board members of the Council of Foreign Relations include Bush's Federal Reserve Chairman, uh, Tim Geithner. Actually, no, I think Geithner was the Treasury Secretary at the time. And uh, Janet Napolitano, the Department of Homeland Security Secretary during Obama's first term in office, are among the current board members of that entity. And also a $1,000 donation from Lisa Cotter, partner at Bain & Company, which is a Boston-based management consulting firm, which is basically like the same kind of thing as McKinsey. And she is the- Related to uh, Capital? uh, They're a slightly different company. They're exactly like McKinsey, but like they do slightly less evil things. They still do evil shit. Bain & Company raked in $4.5 billion in revenue last year. So these are the kind of people who are giving money to Kennedy. And this is just from the last four days. It sounds like he's continuing uh, his family's legacy of being an international cabal of thieves and crooks. So Couldn't have said it better. Yeah. <laughs> like, these are public record on the FEC's website. The Bobby Kennedy was fine. Calm down, everyone. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> what are you talking about? He signed off on Co-Intel Pro. It's true, but... Th- there, is, there is no but. It's true, but I am. We're, we're leftists. Yeah. That's true. <laughs> you realize Co-Intel Pro arranged the <laughs> I know. political assassination. But at the time, Scott, you're, he also went out you're to fucking... Watch- you're canceled, bro. You're canceled. <laughs> no, I'm canceled. There is no but to that. Day, it's fine. Cancel okay. me every day, Brady. Oh. I'm going to get canceled for my accelerationist thoughts later. Whatever. <laughs> all right no dude right. no you're not alone but it drives me insane when people be like oh kennedy's just as good as marky have you looked at the people the kind of people who are giving him money even if you don't why the fuck would you think that the kind of people who give you money as a politician are a very accurate reflection of like the kind of politician that you are yeah man Sounds bad, man. Like, at the end of the day, politicians don't listen to their... They don't act in the best interest of their constituents. They they act in the best interest of the people who give them money. Well, they literally don't listen to their constituents either. No, they don't. But, like, that's, like, the number one rule of American politics. You serve your corporate overlords first. And his corporate overlords are these shitty people who are telling yeah, him not turned, to legalize marijuana. In America, Actually, we've the, turned the political system... To answer system. your question, Scott, about being capital... It, Joe. <laughs> Uh, employees of Bain Capital have given Kennedy $88,000 this campaign cycle. I'm not surprised. Jesse, what were you saying? <laughs> no, don't mind me. It's fine. <laughs> no, sorry about that. I'm, I'm going to shut up now. I mean, I said it in another episode already, but we have corporatized our politics to the degree where politics run the same way that corporations do, where the incentive is to pay out dividends. So the lobbyists are the ones who make those dividends back. And the people over which the politicians preside don't get shit. Sorry, uh, I wasn't, I was like, I was like a depressing ending to that. (laughs) It's all a depressing ending. Knock, knock joke or something. That's why we drink. This is why well, we drink. I, could, I don't. Uh, on a, posit- on a positive note, uh, <laughs> Marky's been out raising Kennedy overall lately. Woo! He's opened up like a $3 million advantage in fundraising. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, a poll that came out six days ago from uh, UMass has Marky up by like a massive loop of polls. I honestly think that the AOC endorsement, like the ad with AOC front and center, was the best possible thing that their campaign could have done. I was fucking Oh, brilliant. I saw that. I saw that earlier tonight, uh, and absolutely. And this new poll by, for, out from UMass, uh, it has Marky up by 15 points among uh, Democratic leading voters. 
And then when they filter down to just Democratic, like registered Democratic voters, the lead actually expands to 18 points. The insane thing is, Markey's like margin over Kennedy is actually still larger like than the number of voters who are undecided. He's gonna kick Just, his ass. I'm not worried. I mean, like your mom is gonna be upset, but too bad. I've actually like browbeaten her into like voting for for Markey. Plus, really? like her union. Yes. But plus, her union has endorsed Marky as well. Can you do something for me, Jesse? Can yeah. you put in like a sick riff right here and just be like Ed Marky or something like just scream it? Yeah. Ed Marky. <laughs> yeah. Fuck yeah. <laughs> Ed Markey. So yeah, in this poll, uh, Marky leads fifty-one to thirty-six among Democratic and Democratic leading voters with 12% undecided. When Democratic-leaning voters were removed from the sample, Markey expenses lead to 50 to 32, but the undecideds also increases to 17 points. So, like, in both of these situations... That is... That's wild, man. In order for Kennedy to be able to close the gap, he'd have to win, like, literally every single undecided voter, which isn't going to happen. Who was his base before this? Like, like was everybody who was supporting him just a bunch of fucking, like, hangers-on? Like, what happened? Because he wasn't he ahead earlier in the fucking months ago? Yeah, when he first announced he had like a 20 point lead but that was largely because of like his like because of the fact of like his last name and like at the time Marky didn't have like the highest like name ID he didn't have like the highest profile going into the race because like he's not like Elizabeth Warren constantly in the headlines he's Sure, he's one of, like, the better senators in Congress, but, like, he just, he does his thing without, like, making too much of a fuss about it. So, like, Marky has, like, a low name ID going to the race, and Kennedy is, well, a Kennedy. So that's, like, yeah, part any, of why Anybody he who's, so well. who's in a race against Kennedy is going to have fucking low name recognition, comparatively. Like, Kennedy is the dynasty. Mm-hmm. But Marky did, has done a really good job. He's arguably like the best like digital organizing operation that I have ever seen. Also like the most recent ad that he cut was amazing. Kind of reminiscent of like AOC's ad that like put her on the map two years ago. Yeah. Like we were saying earlier, there's a whole Slate article about just this ad. <laughs> I guess that also, really was it. I guess you're right, Jesse. It's wild. Also, Jam- Jamal Bowman also endorsed uh, Marky today. Doesn't hurt. They can su- further consolidate like the, the left block of voters were going to go for Markey. Didn't he win, though, already? Yeah. No, yeah. he endorsed Markey. What is he going to do? He's like a new part of the squad. Squad yeah. He beat the chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee last month. Asked which candidate they trust to handle nine issues. Respondents named Markey for all but one. A plurality of voters trusted Markey most to handle the economy, healthcare, taxes, education, climate change, President Trump, transportation, and the coronavirus pandemic. Race relations, <laughs> race relations are the only issue where Kennedy leads, but he leads by a margin of 39 points to 37 points. Well, good. Sixty-seven percent of respondents said Marky shared their views on the issues facing the nation, either quote very well or quote somewhat well. Sixty-three percent said the same of Kennedy. Sixteen percent said Marky didn't share their views on the issues, compared to twenty percent who said Kennedy doesn't share their views on the issues. The poll was conducted from July thirty-first to August seventh and has a margin of error of five point nine percentage points, which means that like so what best case scenario for Kennedy is he goes from like being down fifteen points to being down like nine points. That's still a bloodbath in a statewide race, losing by nine points. It's a massive. I think best case scenario for Kennedy is that like... He gets the fuck out of town. He gets a little bit more tan at least. (laughs) I don't know. I think he's like me. I think he can't tan. I think he doesn't have that allele. Mm. Just looking at him, like we can recognize each other. He just bursts into flames. Yeah. He's a he's a fucking daywalker, dude. He's a ginger, real. Joe Kennedy. Oh god, I don't want to think. <laughs> we don't need to we don't need to be evaluating Joe Kennedy's body. We don't need to segments. That's not what we're about. Is this oh, who we are? Is this what He doesn't even seem to be paying attention half the time. That's exactly what me and Jesse had in mind. Like, look at what's happening. The show is starting to get formed. It's happening. Yeah, it's like the shape of our democracy is... It's the issue that affects... (laughs) The shape of our democracy is the issue that affects every other issue. That's what it was. I don't think I could do a a Buttigieg voice, though. The shape of our democracy. Because it's just a white guy trying to do Obama. That's basically what it is, and I can't do Obama. It's true. And he does that, like, uh, thing, too. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> randomly <laughs> orgasms between words 
Probably, bro. It's probably what he gets off on. He, yeah. he gets off on he's talking about the shape of our He's trying to emulate human emotions. He sees like a big merger between like Warner Brothers and Verizon. <laughs> and he's like, oh, fuck. How about the he money? He sees the post office. Target acquired. Target acquired must destroy and privatize. Target he acquired. The of the Italian pris- uh, prisons under the fascists. And he goes, oh, get it? These aren't, these aren't efficient enough. <laughs> <laughs> These prisons are not efficiently. So, do you have any other current events? Any other? Um, the Arctic is on fire. <laughs> it's very funny. The Arctic is on fire, guys. Oh, crank it up! Well, the, the way you asked me. Maximum okay. fatalism, Joe. Maximum Joe fatalism here. You're, you're, we need to cut please. that out. I need that smile to be a little bit bigger. No, we're not cutting that out. We're keeping that. <laughs> Damn it. Executive but, uh, on fire. It on me. How um, much of well, it is on fire? The, the like thing it, is, is we'll that on a scale um, of one to ten, how much is on fire? Like seventy. Seventy out of ten. Yes. Thing is, is that um, according to forecasts, scientists like projected like the worst case scenario that would like take place in the year twenty fifty is what's happening like right now. Yeah, this is legitimately so, like existentially terrifying. So. So, like, the Arctic is burning at a rate that scientists didn't think was going to happen for another 30 years. So we're, like, 30 years ahead of schedule here. This this is, like, a perfect primer for the accelerationism uh, exactly. discussion that we... Which is why I left it last. Yeah. What's actually terrifying about the numbers is, is, like, this year is like already worse than like all of last year in terms of like the arctic burning like between january 1st of this year and august 11th the arctic has released 240 megatons of carbon emissions was was australia on fire earlier this year was it this year or last year yes i believe it was either beginning of this year or like very very late last year this is the the century in a year there was an article in the commune about the animals oh yeah and they were saving the animals there were like a lot of fake stories about how like badgers were saving all the animals or something and it just turned out not to be true And there was, like, no moral to be gained from that story. <laughs> it was just, like, the place where my parents live is also on fire right now. Like, California is frequently on fire during this time of year, but this is the first time that in my life that uh, there's been fires as close to my parents' house as there are. They haven't had to evacuate yet, but they're, like, packing bags in case they need to. Just saying, like, any place on Earth is, quote-unquote, frequently on fire. <laughs> I mean, it's, yeah. It doesn't inspire but, hope. No, California's not a real place. It's a place where, like, things happen that shouldn't there happen. There might, I mean, it don't happen anywhere else. Really speaking, if it wasn't, I mean, even, like, without human interference, like, it's, like, parts of the planet are always on fire. I mean, whatever. I mean. We are the idiots who decided to put houses there. I mean. It's true. <laughs> we put houses, like, right up next to the ocean, even though we know the ocean's gonna fucking eat them. Like. Who's, who's at fault here? The ocean. No, just kidding. Yeah, I blame the ocean. <laughs> I damn Poseidon, yeah. Case closed. I, I can just imagine, like, Al Gore standing on, like, on the shore, like, screaming into a bullhorn at the, like, in the you. general direction of the ocean. Are you sure? We're sorry. Sure. We, we, we tried. <laughs> He's trying to, like, make a connection with the ocean. Yeah, that's, like, Al Gore's... That's like his route into the spiritual realm. Speaking of the end of the world and barreling towards a uh, unknown period of annihilation, uh, this week we decided we were going to talk about accelerationism. And so, Jesse, do you mind opening up the discussion with uh, your notes on the definitions and, and your analysis? Sure. <clears throat> that sounded like a phone at first. Yeah, <clears throat> That one didn't. <laughs> All right, so... I mean, I did a little bit of digging, and best definition I found was from New Statesman, and that is, accelerationism is the idea that capitalism, or various processes attached to it, should be deepened or accelerated to prompt radical change. There was also a really good article in Mute, written by Reed Kane, 
I'm just going to read an excerpt from that. Acceleration is ambivalent. It is regressive in that it is the mechanism by which the conditions of the working class are forced downwards, but progressive to the extent that it is mediated by political radicalization. The latter can be headed off by compromises that divide the proletariat in different ways, between nations or within nations, on the base of race, gender, nationality, but in the end, dependence on the bourgeoisie for concessions will undermine the impetus for independent proletarian organizations, which erode, in turn, undermining the bourgeoisie's impetus to keep those concessions in place. I also found a random video on YouTube that didn't have very many views, and uh, those are always I mean, the best. Yeah, honestly, it was like a it was a good video. It had too many downvotes, probably because YouTubers who get no views are the ones who like are actually serious about theory. Yeah, and the guy definitely like wrote his own script for the whole video, um, and he just said accelerationism is the revolutionary equivalent of shooting yourself for the life insurance money, and I just thought that was like chef's kiss, fucking. Good. On the nose. Um, I also, there was a Zizek interview at some point. <laughs> I tried to watch I nev- it. I never thought I would be referencing Zizek on any episode. I don't know if Zizek is a serious accelerationist, but... he's Well, he's not. I mean, he yeah. spoke against accelerationism, um, basically using his critiques of, you know, the communist that he claims to shape his ideology from. Ideology. <laughs> that he shapes his ideology from uh, Marx, Lenin, and Mao, <laughs> saying that uh, like they all believe that capitalism was on the way out. That because it was approaching like its most disgusting and exploitative form, that it would soon be overthrown by the proletariat. But you know, as Zizek noted, it's 2020 and capitalism has still not collapsed under its own weight. Um, so basically like the point that he was making was that capitalism and imperialism can always get worse and there's like no cliff that it can be pushed off of. Like that's purely speculative, that point at which it will actually tip. So it'd be foolish to try and push it off that cliff, uh, with an expectation that a proletarian revolution will inevitably follow. And then I, I just wanted to throw in, uh, the famous Che Guevara quote, the revolution is not an apple that falls when it is ripe. You have to make it fall. And he said that in 65, which was mm. basically, it was, a, it was a reflection of what he and Castro had accomplished in Cuba. I think he knew that um, his execution was imminent. And so he was, he was basically talking about the fact that uh, revolutions don't happen naturally. They have to be pushed forward and, and led and, and precipitated by revolutionaries um, and education and, and militancy. And, uh, this was also at a time where like the, um, nuclear dick waving contest was heating up. And, Hell yeah. and so like embracing an accelerationist mindset at that time, like the fucking Posadas did, uh, <laughs> would have literally led to the, yeah, the like the term, the fully automated <laughs> communism planet <laughs> after we bomb earth. Like the, stream, baby. the term that gets thrown around is mutually assured destruction, but um, that language was not part of his speech. He said, Cuba is on the alert, distinguished delegates, because she knows that imperialism would perish enveloped in flames, but that Cuba would also suffer in its own flesh the price of imperialism's defeat, and she hopes that it can be accomplished by other means. Very good. Um, I, on the other hand, I focus primarily on uh, Mark Fisher, and what Mark Fisher has uh, had to say about accelerationism. And majority of this is from uh, his Terminator versus Avatar seminar, which is uh, just about different types of accelerationism. It's mostly a rebuke of uh, a lot of the claims that like Nick Land has made. It's a big rebuke of like Dark Enlightenment. It's a very good piece. You should listen to it. I listen to it on YouTube. Uh, basically, the first phase of accelerationism started in the 70s with the autonomy movements of, uh, in Italy. And it was a fusion of like, post-psychedelic era with libidinal politics and like, the embrace of like, technological advancement, the rejection of like, work and the drudgery of work, um, and the rejection of like, anti-authoritarian dimensions as like, fundamental to a movement, fundamental to like, the working class. It abandoned the idea that we should try to keep um, aesthetics outside of like the realms of politics and stuff. That was mostly the first phase of accelerationism. Uh, then basically the second phase would be the 1990s and the beginning of like dark enlightenment and uh, how neoliberalism started to like really take hold in 
capitalism. And what we saw actually wasn't so much of like an acceleration. There, there was an acceleration of capital. There was a freeze in culture and a freeze in like social advancement and like a freeze in like, like social spaces and the territorialization of like people and like their ability to have social interactions. And then that led into the third phase, which, be, which would be like post 2008, left accelerationism, like Zizek and Mark Fisher. Like I said, there's, uh, there's a couple different strains of, of accelerationism that I'll explain before we like actually get into like a deeper conversation. Uh, one of them is right accelerationism, which is like right-wing accelerationism. It's, it's dark enlightenment, it's Nick Land, Curtis uh, Yavin, Moldbug, if you know him. Uh, and it's basically using parts of capitalism to like speed up the process of capitalism, but never really abandoning capitalism and doing it in a way that's very segregated and racist and keeps it very reactionary. And of course there's left accelerationism, which is overcoming capitalism with its own uh, deterritorialization against like Fisher and Zizek. It's not really a thing anymore. It kind of died out when Mark Fisher took his life. Um, there's zero accelerationism, which is like this weird thing about like causing accelerationisms through stagnation, which like I don't really understand. And it's much more about like post-capitalist praxis, which is another thing I don't really understand. And then the big one is unconditional accelerationism, which is the one that I tend to believe in, which is basically it's acceleration no matter what. It, it's defined by the negation of positive political action. It rejects praxis for a recognition that the framework for action is not defined by humans or social interactions, but by the system itself. And like, when you apply like the laws of thermodynamics, we understand that like an open system tends to decay, tends to uh, entropy. And as time goes on, the likelihood of entropy uh, just increases. And so the likelihood of a collapse and the likelihood of the conditions that precede collapse just become more and more likely as time goes on. And it's not to say that that's necessarily a good thing, but it's, it's a thing that I think is happening. It goes along with the climate change and everything. And like the whole thing with like how, like once the gases are stuck in our atmosphere, they just kind of like circle around and around. Uh, it's, it's just physics, it's gonna happen. And I think what we should do is use the, the class consciousness, different levels of consciousness, uh, like mutual aid and direct action and like, like decentralization and all the things that we can do to help survive, like weather the storm, basically. So Jesse, I'm going to hand it back to you. All right. So I actually wrote a good amount about um, looking into accelerationism as a, a tactic for precipitating the revolution or any revolution or improving material conditions for the proletariat in general and came to the conclusion that basically whatever route we decide to go as a society and as leftists we're still we're still going to have to do political education because unless we have a unified militant working class there's not going to be anything akin to a revolution and i think it was a little bit heartbreaking to go back over like Marx and Engels. I mean, at the time of writing, the condi- they, they just didn't have the imagination to be able to like see into the future. And, you know, there wasn't such thing as Amazon. Like there wasn't the same degree of like monopoly that we have now. Um, there wasn't such thing as cell phones. Uh, just the preconditions of a proletarian revolution looked very different. So the the first point that I wanted to touch on was uh, in the text Socialism, Utopian and Scientific, Engels supposed that the proletarian revolution, meaning the workers seizing the means of production from the capitalists and the state that propped up the capitalists, would basically be a natural consequence of capitalism, quote unquote, coming to a head. But in order for that to happen, in the modern context, that would still require that we reject the capitalist mode of production and its exchange form. Um, so that would probably require a national strike, boycotting of essentially all capitalist industry, or just refusing the value form, which is the United States dollar, which is the backbone of the global economy, um, and thus rejecting the money relation uh, that capital denotes power over over social forces. So we would have to get behind the idea that money is meaningless when it comes to social power dynamics and meaningless as a form of currency. And if we hypothetically embrace these accelerationist tactics, we would obviously be amplifying the contradictions to 
in theory, expose the exploitation by the capitalist class, which would get people, you know, angry enough to do something about it. But it would also imply that the people who are being the most exploited would turn to us leftists for whatever reason, even though we are complicit in this accelerationism. And I think the frustration with the way things are can like blind us to the possibility that it could get significantly worse. And it also doesn't take into account just the lack of class consciousness in this country. Sorry, there's like a some dudes going fucking ham on a mini bike outside. Fuck yeah. Sounds um, like awesome, baby. Yeah. I know, but, uh, but like that's the thing with accelerationism is like I don't really think it's a force that like uh, like a political movement can like control for very long. You know, like right. we can use it to like again heighten like contradictions and like you know point out that like things have changed and like if we want to get into post structuralist theory, we can go there too. But uh, it's not an element that can really be harnessed for very long before it, it like we just start to feed into what's actually just hurting people. You know, right. But I actually like I wanted to make that as clear as possible. And like, I don't share tendencies with the rest of, for instance, the rest of the the people in the DSA. But like the the notion that the, the best path forward is to basically increase suffering to the point that people have no choice but to rebel. It sounds flawed on its face, but there is, I'm sure that there are people who could justify it using, like I said, like Marx and Engels. Um, But as I continue to flush this out, like I think it'll become more clear why it's really not feasible. So uh, like I was saying, it, it would ignore the, the lack of class consciousness that we have in this country, uh, the sort of manufactured, rugged individualism. We would also have to share the responsibility for the consequences of these accelerationist tactics, the ends of which are basically theoretical and are contingent upon the increasingly oppressed masses' ability to strip power from an increasingly powerful minority. And I would say that the means don't really justify those theoretical ends when literal lives are at stake because people are fucking dying. Like people can't get access to food and medical care and housing and there's hate crimes. Like there's all sorts of shit that would get much worse. And even the more fortunate amongst the working class, so I guess what remains of the middle class would have to sacrifice what little they still have to support the most vulnerable people, meaning the immigrants, people of color, sick, disabled, homeless. And I feel like given that it seems like the ruling class has basically embraced fascism out of self-preservation as the flaws of capitalism become more apparent, they're kind of teaching people to the, the blame is being shifted onto the wrong target. And I think it's easier for the average person to, to blame somebody over which they have power than to fully embrace a new ideology of class struggle, which is a task that's made more momentous when like the boot is pressing down on your fucking neck. And there's no guarantee that the working class is going to res- respond in a cohesive manner, because at least from a Marxist standpoint, this would require like a unified party with a shared doctrine and ideology, having a clear message uh, consistent demands that benefit all members of the party and strong leadership, which would be democratically appointed and directly represent that party. Also, never forget, it would require some kind of vanguard, uh, pseudo-military, uh, committed to fight against the state. So we're not talking about the current military. We are talking about basically a, a red guard, which would mean that their incentives would have to be ideological and not financial and not connected to you know, seizing power under the current power dynamic. And those values would have to be identical to those in the party. And it would also require a fully cooperative proletariat with identity rooted in class that is strong enough to reconcile the discrepancies in regard to faith, religion, gender, sexual identity, ethnicity, geography, like rural versus urban. That's another fucking stupid unnecessary sociological divide that's been like coming to a head more, I think starting mostly with Hillary Clinton and the notion of like the coastal elites and then all the other cultural customs that vary across this country. And I think most importantly, accelerationism negates the wants, needs and welfare of our fellow humans. And I have a whole other thing about reformist tactics. Right. 
that I'm not going to get into right now. Real quick, before we get, we'll get into like a little bit of a discussion about like class consciousness and a debate about like what we think uh, we can do with accelerationism. I just want to go over Fisher, uh, like Fisher had made three essential claims about accelerationism. Um, and I just want to go over them really quick. And that's one is that everyone is an accelerationist. And that basically means that like, at this point, all human society and all human interaction has been infused with capital to a point that like everything is a process of capital and the process of capital feeds into accelerationism inherently. Again, it's like the, 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 the laws of physics, the uh, entropy, the, 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 you know, the nature of decay. His second claim was that accelerationism has never really happened. And by this, he either means that it's like a modern phenomenon that came about in the post-70s in the neoliberal era or that like it's not a positive process and that like it actually can't be like defined as like an accumulation of anything it's more of a lacking because it is characterized by a decay and is by like material conditioning conditions actually getting worse instead of better um and then his third claim is that marxism is nothing if not accelerationist and again like it's important to understand that like even marx said like by the immiseration thesis he said that like aspects of capitalism like free trade can be used against capitalism to try to fight it and try to heighten the contradictions and try to like attain some sort of autonomy uh as like workers but like at the same time fisher could mean that like in marx's basic metaphysics the, the basic idea of dialectics and the basic idea of historical materialism is a process of like it's a pyramid of accumulation it's a pyramid of constantly building and going up and up and more and more and so I like again. I, these are things I tend to agree with. These are things I tend to think are actually where we are headed. Uh, again, we were have to. We're going to have to protect each other. We're going to have to work together to try to keep each other. Because again, as it feeds into global warming, as I so already said before, but like we have to, uh, we have to come together. Ellie, what do you have to say about um, uh, Terrence, Terrence McKenna? McKenna? Yeah. So yeah. So Terrence McKenna was not per se a philosopher, he was not a he was not into politics really. Um he was I think uh, Wikipedia calls him an uh, American ethnobotanist, mystic, psychonaut, lecturer, author, and an advocate for the responsible use of naturally occurring psychedelic plants. So oh, fuck yeah. Yeah, he was very into acid DMT and a lot of other that stuff like that and talked about them extensively. Um, but the stuff that I always think about when I think about him and which makes me, you know, think about him in the context of this discussion, you know, we're talking about accelerationism as a tactic or a strategy, but also kind of as a thing that just seems to be happening if I'm understanding Mark Fisher's, you know, first claim properly. Um, but Terrence McKenna talked a lot about, he had this thing called novelty theory. Um, which was where he kind of observed that over all of history, not just human history, but history at all, to dating back to, you know, the Big Bang, the like novelty of the universe, the complexity of the universe has just been increasing exponentially. Um, and, you know, there used to be single celled organisms and then there was then there was like mammals and you know then there was humans and once humans showed up things started to get even crazier faster and faster and that's the thing um with the arrival of humans on the planet the rate of complexity of just existence uh started to accelerate and in the modern era like things have gotten even crazy you know there's the industrial revolution and then there was now we live in you know, the, the age of information, et cetera, et cetera. Like things have been just getting more and more complex and more and more novel. And he had this theory that uh, we were just basically accelerating towards what he calls um, the uh, Omega moment, I want to say, or the transcendental object at the end of history, which like, I don't know what that is, but uh, I mean, you can kind of get a sense that like we've been hurtling towards some kind of just like extreme change, um, not necessarily like an apocalypse or end of the world, but like definitely the end of life as we know it, like, you know, life as the way things have been. And I think about that a lot when I hear, you know, when I hear you guys talking about accelerationism, because I think that naturally with the way things are, um, having the internet now, you know, 
I can have that moment that I talked about a few episodes ago, where instead of just reading about what's happening in, say, Portland in the newspaper, and just like reading some words and maybe seeing a picture, I can actually go on Facebook and look at live video of protesters, you know, throwing tear gas back at police and get a real sense, you know, there's like, just like connection is at a level that we could never have imagined, that Marx could never have imagined, that Engels could never have imagined. And I feel like fear and disconnection are the things keeping us apart and causing all of the problems that we have in the world. (laughs) And I feel like there's just sort of this inevitability that if there's going to be a transcendental object at the end of history and a major consciousness shift or whatever, that it only follows that it would be one wherein we we become more connected to each other, like overall, like at a level that just changes everything. And I think we're already part of the way there. People are, the people are resisting, obviously, because people don't like change. But uh, I'm, you know, ever optimistic, even as the Arctic burns, because yeah, man. I think that it's inevitable. Like, I feel like I hate to say something as bold as like, I feel like we're on the right side of history, but I genuinely do feel like we are. And I think Terrence McKenna would agree. Um, And I'm really sad that he died of a brain tumor in like 2000 and never got to see everything that's happening. Yeah, man, I agree. Uh, I agree with the thing you said about the internet. The thing about the internet is that it kind of defies what the neoliberal project has been, which was to destroy class consciousness and was to tamper down any sort of like solidarity that could like be born in even like social spaces because it's blurred that line between like the social and the, the work and the business. And so like, it, you know, in, in the internet gives us a space where we can be anything. So we don't have to worry about like who we are in the social space. We don't have to worry about who we are at work. We don't even have to worry about who we assume we are. We can just be something else. And that has birthed all these different consciousnesses that are recognizing the inherent injustices to the system that we live under. And so it is a good project. Again, it feels like it does. It feels like we're going towards some sort of a, uh, not to, you know, epoch, um, but <laughs> of like a human instrumentation sort of thing, human instrumentality, like we're of like a binding of souls or something. I don't know. Or it could just be the planet explodes. But either way, we're headed to something. And the world was always, get, here's the thing, the world was always going to end, but that doesn't mean that we can't stop to try to like, like fight to make it better, so. Right. <laughs> yeah. I think it's more likely the planet will explode, but that's just me. Yeah, baby. That's still a trip. We're going to, our particles are going to be spread across the universe. It's we're gonna fucking rules, man. That sounds That doesn't trippy. sound very pleasant. Sounds trippy as shit. You're not going to care. You're already going to be exploded. So like, yeah, You won't care. What were you going to say, Jesse? <laughs> Yeah, well, I I was just going to say that, like, what I was talking about was an indictment of accelerationist tactics if we negate the current project. Like, accelerationism is happening whether we are taking part in it or not. Like, the COVID crisis has proved as its own sort of miniature period of accelerationism. The crisis can be seen as a material instance of uh, deterritorialization because right. nobody's fucking working anymore in, from, in, like, in a capitalist setting, I mean. Everybody's working from home. We have right. now the body, is, the organs fell out because it got sick with a respiratory disease. So. so like we have this new sort of interconnectedness. I mean, we've had the internet for a while, but seeing society reorganize itself such that we are all still very interconnected without having to physically be together. Um, and I see it a lot, especially like with, with NA meetings, like there's Zoom meetings fucking 24 seven. And I see people in the meetings that are from not just different cities, but different states and sometimes even different fucking countries that are just grateful to be able to connect with fellow addicts. And like the, the points that I was making were more that if things continue to get worse and we leave our praxis to like the forces of nature to just figure shit out. Like we're not doing our jobs as socialists. You know what I mean? We have to work on these, these things that divide the working class the way that they do now. Like this is why identity politics is actually fucking important. Like we have to fight for everybody in the working class. We can't be like a cohesive unit and be fucking racist or transphobic or like the the communists and anarchists can't be like having some ridiculous 24-7 Twitter fight, like hoping that somehow that's going to bring about societal change for the better. Like, get the fuck off Twitter. 
<laughs> yeah, I don't even speaking have of, Twitter. <laughs> speaking of, sorry to interrupt, but speaking of racists, uh, Joe Biden officially became the Democratic Party nominee for president about an hour ago. Uh, wow, that is a real shocker. I would have never guessed that they would pick <laughs> Joe Biden. That was actually one of the points in the uh, sort of juxtaposition, uh, the the reformist, the reformist option, which is obviously not revolutionary, but not accelerationist either. I mean, Joe Biden's already committed to upholding this like corporate neoconservatism, like austerity in regard to social security cuts, privatization with big banks, healthcare industry, all the imperialist wars that like he's been backing since probably the beginning of his congressional career. You think we're going to bomb him I mean, we, he did. Finally? He did actually. He did actually try to cut Social Security four times while he was in the Senate. Yeah, like when people ask me why I wouldn't want to vote for Biden, like I'm on fucking disability. Like, what would I do, yo? I would have to change my entire. I would have to change my work schedule. I would have to figure out a lot of shit. I probably wouldn't be able to organize with you guys that much anymore because I would. I would have to be working literally every day to just be able to continue to live. And on top of that, he picked a fucking cop for a VP, and he's already explained his uh, obsession with punitive drug laws and heavy policing at our expense. So, I mean, going with Joe Biden isn't much different, even though the tactics would be quite different from this intentional accelerationism. Going the, the purely reformist route kind of leads us down the same path. Yeah, we're so fucked. We still, like <laughs> yeah. I, I'm going to interject say, I actually honestly find the Biden campaign to be, well, I mean, it's in its current form now, this like culminated with uh, the announcement of the, the full ticket, actually does strike me as accelerationist because we are screaming towards oblivion. And you've got this guy who has been basically dog shit on everything. And, and his heir apparent is a woman who arguably is like more sociopathic in her zeal and desire to enact like austerity and basically uphold like the neoconservative ideology, probably more like committed to like vigorously enforcing that than he is. And it's been, it's become pretty clear that like he's only going to be around for four he's years. And as a result, like if even like, actually lives all four years yeah, that exactly. term. That's and like she's setting up like she's setting up arguably someone who's quite possibly worse than him in the long run and she's basically going to be on a glide path to the presidency for eight years after this and this is this is assuming that Biden doesn't die during his term yeah that's the thing I keep wondering is is like did they pick Kamala or Kamala as as Randy Rainbow has explained to me um did they pick her in the hopes that Biden will die during his presidency, are they are they like crossing their fingers behind their backs? It's like fucking. You better Actually, fight it. You I better think... fucking fight it. He can barely talk. No, he can't think anymore. He's just a fucking brain in a jar, and it's not even functioning anymore. He's, he needs to die. I think she's like the the ruling class's like insurance plan because she's been like talking to like the the top party like mega donors like going out to the hamptons in like the summer of 2017 in the midst of like the republican party's attempt to blow up the affordable care act where was kamala harris not in the senate she was in the hamptons meeting with the party's super donors getting some fucking money so you agree uh they're hoping that joe biden dies I think I think they're fine with him. I think they're like fine either way. It doesn't really matter to them if he dies because they now have a, a, an insurance, like a, they have a fail safe in the form of Harris. Because if Biden dies during the first two years of his presidency, Harris could actually end up being president for like 10 years. I think Nira Tandon hopes that Joe Biden dies. Because, Long game. Because Harris could actually, there is a scenario where Harris can actually end up be, being president for 10 years. If he dies like within like the first year of his term, she can like legally be president for like three years out of that term and it won't count against the term limits. Gotta love democracy, baby. American democracy. Woo! This is eerily so, similar to the uh, shooting yourself to get the life insurance money <laughs> allegory. Literally. Either way, and I forgot to mention this earlier, and then we can go on. Uh, Elizabeth Warren, by the way, has made herself the funniest person in politics. Ooh. Those memes have Fucking like, look out, Amy Klobuchar. The funniest person in American politics. Whoops. How would your hair... <laughs> 
fair, fair in, in a, a blizzard. blizzard. Hey, I am, I am the funniest I person in politics. If you try to tell anybody else you're the funniest person in politics, I will throw a stapler at you. I almost said some shit. You were you were gonna have to edit out, Jesse. So, <laughs> so even in the epic. I'm down. You can still nope, say it. not saying it. <laughs> I don't know what's more depressing: the thought that it's actually possible for Harris to be president for 11 years, or the fact that like we'll have to put up with Pete Buttigieg running for president every cycle until like either. He eventually becomes president and, like, private, like, McKinsey fires, like, the entire world. Or, like, our society collapses. You don't think he's learned his lesson? Well, fuck no. He thought that it was a good idea to run for president after he got, like, 8,000 votes for mayor or something. (laughs) And then, like, like, like we're going to have to get significantly more than that to get the Massachusetts Medicare for All ballot initiative even, like, part of the way through our first year goal. Actually, what's really funny is, uh, like, this isn't... I feel... Well, Buttigieg's attempt is a little bit more complicated because he tried to, like... He was basically stuck because he's from Indiana. And as a Democrat, can't get anywhere, like, statewide politics in Indiana. He tried running for state treasurer in 2010. He got curb stumped by, like, a Tea Party guy. He tries running for president, and then, like, like you know, basically, like, a George Floyd situation happens midway into his campaign. It's like, maybe, maybe you shouldn't run for president again. Fuck Pete Buttigieg. Well, he learned from his lesson? No. Had a beer. <laughs> yeah, I don't think there could have been, like, a worse time for his political career than... Like, than, right now? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He could have done well in 2004. Oh, he would have been perfect in 2004. Oh, he was, like, fucking 17 in 2004. No, I mean, like, if he was, like, old enough to run. I know what I'm just saying. (laughs) If he had a time machine, he wanted to go back. It'll be like Little Big League. They'll exploit some, like... No, that kid inherits inherits the team. Never mind. (laughs) What's actually ironic is, like, when he was in high school, he, he like, won, like, an essay contest. And he wrote a paper about how, like, great Bernie Sanders is. Yeah. And then, like... Rat fuck! And then he turned into, like, the McKinsey guy. Again, I've had a beer. I've also <laughs> had a beer, but Scott is saying all the things that I'm thinking, so I don't have to say them. It's like, at some point between, like, high school and, like, getting out of college, he turned into, like, the McKinsey shield that he is. He's just a meme of the... When you get out of college and get your first job and you throw the communist manifesto in the trash can but like more forcefully <laughs> instead of throwing not only did he throw it away but he started fixing the price of bread in canada he started burning he, copies of the conquest of bread jesus you know what's insane now like also probably not great for his career is that like one of his uh jobs at mckinsey was like trying to privatize the post office he works for a company that fixed bread prices he did <laughs> <laughs> Shit. Oh. <laughs> like, how much more evil can you get than that? Like, seriously. You could be... Elon Musk. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to say that. I don't think that, like... I think that Pete Buttigieg has, like, a conservative outlook on, like... I don't want to tell... You know what? I'm going to nip this. I don't want to fucking talk about Pete Buttigieg anymore. I hate <laughs> that guy. Moratorium. Fuck that guy. That guy it's sucks. Fair. Two people in the moratorium, Candace Owens. How did we get there? And now Pete Buttigieg. No, we can talk about him sometimes, but not right now. All right. (laughs) That's fair. Joe, what's your thoughts on accelerationism? You for it? You think we should vote it into office? No, because as Jesse said already, (laughs) there is no point at which capitalism will collapse under its own weight. Because the left has been waiting for capitalism to collapse under its own weight for like 150 years. It hasn't happened yet. Yeah. It seems very unlikely to happen. No, we gotta, we gotta fucking amp up the. We gotta turn it up to eleven. Pull the apple off the tree. If we keep trying to cause it to collapse under its own weight by heightening the contradiction, eventually we're gonna end up like living in the plot of the expanse. Yeah. See, in like for the first part of the twentieth century, capitalism had the advantage of technological advancement and expansion. And now in the post neoliberal world that we live in, what capitalism relies on is this constant process of taking cultural movements and like adopting that as a new face. And like this constant process of like re- uh, re-territorialization around a different image and a different face. So, you know, that's why it never collapses well, under its own weight. 
it also had it also had the advantage of like only having to work for white people specifically for white men until pretty fucking recently like unfortunately but but that's that's the truth so the decade after the civil rights movement is the decade in which neoliberalism takes over yes same fucking the truth is out there thanks jimmy carter thanks for that (laughs) do you believe in ufos joe I could go either way. Do you believe in psychedelic consciousness? Because I do. I have to do this opportunity <laughs> to admit that I believe in UFOs, but only because, in my experience, when there's a whole bunch of people being like, I experienced a thing, and then some other body in power being like, no, it was swamp gas. You are crazy. Usually the people that said they experienced the thing were telling the truth. I don't know why, but I immediately thought of that SpongeBob episode where Plankton got like broken down into his constituent parts and he was 1% evil and 99% hot gas. <laughs> and that is a great place to end it. Um, yeah. So my name is Scott. Uh, I'm on the various social medias. You can follow me if you like. Uh, Joe, go. Uh, Joe, uh, you can find me on the internet. You can find me on Twitter and on Instagram. I'm sure you can figure it out by now. Uh, I'm Ellie. You can find me on this podcast. I'm Jesse, and you can find me on SoundCloud, of all places. SoundCloud.com slash Contingents Boston. And if you're in the greater Boston area, hit up comrade-rosie.org for resources pertaining to addiction and mental health treatment as well as food banks and and cool art and links and cool and cool art and legislative actions that we will soon organize into an easier format for the user experience (laughs) (laughs) Uh, thank you jesse we're also on twitter we are on Instagram. We're on Patreon. That's all at Epic Incredulity. We're on Facebook at the Epoch of Incredulity. We're on YouTube at the Epoch of Incredulity. We have a long name. Anyways, that was it. Enjoy your Epoch. Thank you, everyone. The Epoch of Incredulity. Incredulity.